Voted as the number one tourist spot in the state of Illinois, Starved Rock is a world apart from the windy city of Chicago and of the flat farmland that covers much of the state. Starved Rock State Park is characterized by its large canyons, tall trees, and 2,600 acres of wilderness. It is also known for a Native American legend, where Indians were starved to death upon a huge rock outcrop after being besieged by a rival tribe. It is also famous for the horrific rape and murder of three women and the subsequent haunting and paranormal activity throughout the park. This is Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 4, Episode 15, Starved Rock. Before European contact, the area was home to Native Americans, particularly the Kaskaskai, who lived in the grand village of the Illinois across the river from the park's banks. Louis Juliet and Jacques Marquet were the first Europeans recorded as exploring the region, and by 1683, the French had established Fort St. Louis on a large sandstone butte overlooking the river, which they called the Rock. Later, after the French had moved on, according to local legend, a group of Native Americans of the Illinois Confederation, pursued by the Ottawa and Potawatomi, fled to the butte in the late 18th century. In the legend, around 1769, the Ottawa and Potawatomi besieged the butte, starving those on it to certain death. As their numbers decreased from starvation, desperate warriors attempted to escape, only to be slaughtered in their surrounding forests. The forests are now said to be haunted by these warriors, and the butte became known as Starved Rock, where the wails and moans of those dying can still be heard on the wind. In 1919, the legend of Starved Rock would be printed in poem by Edgar Lee Masters. Here is a sample of the poem. This is the tragic and the fateful stone, La Rocher, our starved rock. A symbol and a paradigm, a sphinx of elegy and battle hymn, whose lips unlock life's secret, which is vanishment, defeat, in epic dirges for the races that pass and leave no traces before new generations driven in the blast of time and nature blowing round its head, renewing in the present what the past knew wholly, or in part, so to repeat. Warfare, extermination, old things dead, but brought to life again in life's immortal pain. Edgar Lee Masters had visited the lodge at Starved Rock and was fascinated by the land and the legends. Daniel Hitt had purchased the land that is today occupied by Starved Rock State Park from the United States government in 1835 for $85 as compensation for his tenure in the U.S. Army. He sold the land in 1890 to Fernand Walter for $15,000. Recognizing the potential for developing the land as a resort, Walter constructed the Starved Rock Hotel and Natural Pool near the base of Starved Rock, as well as a concession stand and a dance hall. The French and Native American heritage of the region also drew visitors to the site, and Walters set up a variety of walkable trails and harbored small boats near the hotel that made trips along the Illinois River. In 1911, the land was sold to the state of Illinois to develop an extensive public park 
1946, the first automobiles would have easy access to explore the park via newly developed interstates and byways. In 1960, the park was officially declared a National Historical Landmark. But the celebration of the park came to a sudden stop when news broke that Starved Rock was once again the land of suffering, blood, and tears. Three middle-aged women, Mildred Lindquist, Lillian Oting, and Frances Murphy, had driven from their upscale homes in the Chicago suburbs for a four-day holiday at Starved Rock Park. The three friends, who all attended the Riverside Presbyterian Church, had been anxious for an outing together. Oding, who had spent the entire winter nursing her husband after a heart attack, was especially looking forward to several days of hiking, bird-watching, and spending time outdoors. Employees at the park's lodge would later remember the arrival of the three ladies. Frances Murphy had parked her gray station wagon in the inn's parking area, and she and her friends had unloaded their few pieces of luggage. They registered for two rooms, dropped off their bags, and then ate lunch in the dining room. Afterward, they remarked to one of the staff members that it was a beautiful day for a hike, and they left carrying a camera and a small pair of binoculars. The women walked away from the lodge wearing rubber galoshes. The path was covered with light snow, and they trudged and slipped along, pausing occasionally to take a photograph of one another. Eventually, they came to the dead end of St. Louis Canyon, where steep, rocky walls framed a majestic frozen waterfall. The three women were only one mile from the lodge. Here, Lillian struggled with the controls of her friend's camera, but she managed to snap several color slides of the canyon. When she was finished, the group turned to leave and came face to face with a monster. The first sign that something was wrong occurred that evening when George Oding tried to telephone his wife at the lodge. She had promised to call him, but when she had not, Oding placed his own call. He was told by staff on duty at the desk that his wife was not available. It was surmised that the ladies had gone out somewhere and the staff member suggested that she would call in the morning. Unconcerned, George went to bed. The next morning he called the lodge again and once more asked to speak to his wife. The employee who answered mistakenly told the worried man that the three women had been seen at breakfast and were simply out of the lodge at the time. Reassured, he ended the call. That night, a late winter storm hit the Illinois Valley. In St. Louis Canyon, several inches of snow covered the ground. The near blizzard conditions continued all night long, making the roads in the park nearly impassable. George telephoned the lodge again on Wednesday morning, but his wife and her friends could still not be located. At his insistence, employees entered the women's room and found that the beds and bags were untouched. A quick check of the parking lot also showed that the station wagon had not been moved. Shocked, George realized that his wife and her friends had now been missing for more than 40 hours. George ended the call. And then he called his longtime friend, Virgil Peterson, the operating director of the Chicago Crime Commission. When Peterson learned of the news, he contacted the state police and other law enforcement agencies in the area. Within minutes, word of the missing women had reached the LaSalle County Sheriff's Office, and Sheriff Ray Utsi began organizing search parties to look for the women. He accompanied one of the groups that left immediately for the park. Bill Danley, a local newspaper reporter, 
was just finishing his last story for the day's edition when he got a tip about the disappearances and headed for the park to cover the story. As he parked his car, he was told that the bodies of women had been found and he raced into the canyon, camera in hand. The newspaper reporter saw police around three mutilated women who were lying side by side, partially covered with snow. They were on their backs under a small ledge and their lower clothing had been torn away and their legs spread open. Each of them had been beaten viciously about the head and two of the bodies were tied together with heavy white twine. They were covered with blood and their exposed legs were blackened with bruises. State police detectives arrived and began a search of the immediate area. Except for the floor of the overhang where the bodies were found, the entire canyon was covered in nearly six inches of snow. Signs of a violent struggle were revealed beneath the layer of fine snow. A camera was found about ten feet from the victims. Its leather case was smeared with blood, and its strap was broken. They also found the woman's bloody binoculars. A short distance away, a frozen tree limb that was streaked with blood was found. The snow beneath it was covered with blood, and it was realized that this was likely the murder weapon. A trail of gore also led them to speculate that the women had been killed deeper in the canyon, and then their bodies had been dragged and positioned under the rock ledge. The bodies remained in place for hours until pathologists and state crime lab officials could arrive. Once the initial investigation was concluded, the bodies were taken to Hulse Funeral Home in Ottawa, where they were examined and it was determined the woman had obviously been molested, but the cold and limitations of medical techniques at the time failed to find any evidence of rape. The doctors were able to determine the time of death, placing it shortly after they had enjoyed lunch at the lodge. No motive was suggested for the murders, but robbery was dismissed as the women had left all their money and jewelry behind in their rooms when they went out for their afternoon hike. The investigation ran as cold as the snow, almost from the start. Newspapers and radio broadcasters around the state widely reported the slow progress of the investigation, and the park was near empty as panic of a maniac on the loose was reported. Investigators had only one real, tangible piece of evidence— and with their own funds, secured a telescope to look more closely at that twine that had been used to tie the women up. Eventually, they found the twine to be used at the lodge to tie up food parcels in the kitchen. Investigators questioned employees, who were on the last man employed at the lodge, a dishwashing hand, Chester Otto Weger. After his polygraph test was completed, the tester went pale, after months and months of cold leads, the tester looked at the investigators and said, That's your man. Wigger was cooperative with the investigation and offered himself up to further polygraph tests, all of which he failed. His jacket was also brought in for examination, and it was determined the dark stains on it were human blood in origin. That is all investigators could get out of Wigger so they started looking into similar crimes in the area to see if they could match him with anything that went unsolved. In a photo lineup, a victim of a rape and robbery, which occurred about a mile away from Starved Rock just one year previous, pointed out Weger as the perpetrator. 
But Wicker was not arrested until after an important election was cast months later. They hoped that Wegger would break down and confess to the Starved Rock murders as well. They interrogated Wegger for over 12 hours straight, and finally, when he was alone, one of the investigators said he had confessed to him, stating, All right, I did it. I got scared. I tried to grab their pocketbook. They fought, and I hit them. Wegger confessed several more times to the murders over the next few days and even reenacted the killings for a crowd of policemen and reporters at the canyon. Then, suddenly, after his first meeting with his court-appointed attorney, Wegger changed his story and stated that he was innocent of all the charges. Wegger claimed investigators had coerced a confession from him by threatening him with a gun. He had lied in his confession, but had been so scared that he signed the papers anyway. Wigger was brought to trial. Jury selection took almost two weeks, and the trial began on January 20th, 1961. It was decided to file charges against Wigger for only one of the three murders. The reason for this was that in the event of a mistrial or an acquittal, they could still file charges against him for the other killings. They also sought the death penalty in the case. Almost exactly a year after the murders, the jury brought back a guilty verdict for Wegger. On the day of his 22nd birthday, he was sentenced to a term of life imprisonment. Wegger is still imprisoned to this day, having been denied parole several times. Today, however, some people speculate that Wegger may in fact not be the killer. They say his confession would not stand up in court today, especially when he was not even read his Miranda rights. They also claim that there is no way Wigger, a very thin man, could have overpowered three women at once and then dragged all three by himself. Others who believe in Wigger's innocence point to a deathbed confession that allegedly occurred in 1982 or 1983. A Chicago police sergeant named Mark Gibson submitted an affidavit in 2006 that recounted this confession. It was being used in court to support a motion for new DNA tests in the Starved Rock murder case. In the affidavit, Gibson stated that he and his partner, now deceased, were called to Rush St. Luke's Presbyterian Hospital to see a terminally ill patient who wanted to clear her conscience. The police officer said, The woman was lying in a hospital bed. I went over toward her and she grabbed hold of my hand. She indicated that when she was younger, she had been with her friends at a state park when something happened. The woman then told Gibson that she was at a park in Utica, and things got out of hand. Multiple victims were killed, and they dragged their bodies. Gibson said that at that moment, the women's daughters cut the interview short, shouting that their mother was, quote, out of her mind and ordered the police out of the room. The alleged confession was not allowed into the court hearings, but the new DNA tests were ordered. However, the samples had been corrupted over the years and were of no use. Wegger insists that the DNA would have proven him innocent of the crime. To this day, he continues to maintain that he was framed for the murders by deputies Dummett and Hess. At this time, I would like to take a quick break to tell you about a website that allows you to search for the cheapest car rentals. Searching for the cheapest and best car rental just got a whole lot easier. 
Rent from the big brands you know and trust and easily find the best rate without the hassle. You can rent a car in over 53,000 locations in over 160 different countries. You get the same great cars, but at a lower price. There are no booking fees or hidden costs. You're using the world's largest car rental agency, and most rentals come with free cancellation. Booking is easy and secure. Within minutes, you will have the best rental car options at the best price. If you need to make any changes to your booking, each booking comes with free amendments and phone support. You are basically getting the same great rental cars at discounts of up to 70% off. No one else can compare to the selection and price. To find the cheapest car rental, visit www.experiencethis360.com. At the top links, you will see a link called Best Travel Deals. Click that and use the drop-down menu that reads Best Rate Car Rental. Links will also be available in the show notes. Again, that's www.experiencethis360.com. Now back to the podcast. For most visitors to the park, the story of the murders is not known, but sometimes the story comes to light in paranormal ways. Many witnesses have claimed hearing voices, hearing females screaming, and coming face to face with the ghosts of the three women. Ghost hunter Dan Norvell from Expedition Entity came into the 97ZOK studio in Rockford, Illinois to talk about the ghosts at Starved Rock. Ghosts and spirits, I don't think everybody believes. If I'm being honest, I think those who say they don't believe are making themselves disbelieve because it makes them uncomfortable knowing we aren't alone. We've all heard noises, felt things that have no explanation. Well, they do have an explanation. It's just frightening to think about what it really is. Sometimes the spirits of the dead come back. Sometimes... They never leave. They don't cross over. And these spirits don't always intend to do us harm. Not always. This year, in celebration of Halloween, stories from ghost hunter Dan Norvell on 97ZOK. Okay, so for this story, we traveled to Starved Rock State Park in Utica, Illinois. Back in 1960, three women were murdered and mutilated in uh, St. Louis Canyon by Chester Wager. He killed them by bludgeoning them to death, and uh, he shoved their body into the cave. There's probably about three of them down there, but that is probably the deepest cave. So we went down, we investigated the cave. We caught some interesting things on the ghost box. And listening to that audio, I'll play it uh, several times here, but I swear I hear the number 14. significance of that number 14 march 14th 1960 is when those three women went missing dan you also got some interesting k2 hits what is that again what a k2 meter is is it measures electromagnetic fields now under 90 feet of limestone and no electricity down there you shouldn't be getting any hits it was just me and my partner randy and I was sitting towards the back of the cave. We just got done doing a ghost box session. I distinctly heard a female's voice from behind my right side go, Help me. Help me. 
and you want to talk about sending shivers down your spine. Was there some weather condition that played a role in the discovery of these bodies? Yes. Uh, the day that Wager killed the women, that very night there was a blizzard, real heavy snow, about 14 inches. They didn't even find those women for like two or three days. Then they went down and had to take them out of the canyon. And I don't know if you've ever been to Starved Rock. It's not a bad hike, but it's definitely not an easy hike to go down and get three bodies. The lengthy investigation that followed eventually led to the arrest and conviction of someone who worked in the Lodge's restaurant. That's Chester Wegger. Chester was served a life sentence in connection to those three murders, but he maintains that he is innocent. Says that a confession he gave police in 1960 was coerced. Once telling a Chicago Tribune reporter, I'll stay in prison the rest of my life to prove my innocence before I'll make any deal with any of you crooked people. The Steve Shannon Show on 97ZOK. The cave where the three bodies were found continues to be a destination for those seeking paranormal activity. However, one does not have to go deep into the park to encounter anything unusual. The lodge built in the 1900s is said to be haunted with the ghosts of the natives who have died on the butte and also those hacked to death in the nearby forests. Guests have reported seeing a black apparition and strange orbs of light, and they have felt cold spots and experienced doors that open and close by themselves. Here are some eyewitness accounts of the hauntings at the lodge and the surrounding area. I worked as a maid at the lodge. One day at work, I was asked by another housekeeper to bring some soap to the third floor. She was alone on the third floor when I came up. I used my pass key to open a room that I was told needed soap. I was startled when I opened the door by a woman standing by the window, her back to me looking out. She turned and looked at me and turned back to look out the window again. I said, I'm sorry, I didn't know you had checked in. I have your soap. I put the soap on the bed and left. I went down the hall to where my coworker was finishing up her rooms. I told her the people in 302 must have checked in, and I gave her some soap. My coworker said, no one has checked in. These rooms are all empty. We both went to the room and knocked on the door. No one answered, so we went into the room and found that it was totally empty. No one was there. Last year, my boyfriend and I were hiking on a path near the river. We were heading towards one of the canyons. There was quite a path leading to it, and just around one of the turns we saw a young girl with dark hair walking towards us. She was in a light purple dress, a 1960s style. She made eye contact with me for a moment and just looked past us and kept walking. We both stopped and looked back, but she was gone. I was looking for a family, but... We hadn't seen anyone for about 10 minutes, and there was no one at the canyon itself. The canyon only had one entrance point, and we decided to head back to the car after that. Several years ago, I was hiking with my family near one of the canyons. We heard loud yelling some distance behind us and figured it was a group of teenagers having fun. 
But then we started hearing a drum, like a Native American war drum. The yelling faded away, but the drumming got louder. I turned back to look and saw a man standing near a tree and another crouched with a drum between his legs, both dressed in Native American clothing and both staring straight at us. The man standing moved slowly behind the tree and out of my sight. My family and I got out of there as quickly as we could, hearing the drum the whole way. When we finally got out of the woods, we found ourselves at the lodge and got a ride from a ranger back to our car. We never went back to Starved Rock again. I stayed in room 303 just last week. The room was cold, so I tried to raise the temperature on the thermostat. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw one of the bureau drawers slowly open, revealing a thick fleece blanket. Also, during the night, I woke up to use the washroom. Weird, subtle lights were swirling on the floor. It was pitch black in the room, but when I turned on the bedside light, they stopped. I loved my stay at the lodge, but there is definitely a heaviness in the air there. I stayed in the main lodge on the first floor with my girlfriend last year in March. I can't remember the exact room number, but it was close to the back exit. I was exhausted the first night we stayed there from all the hiking, but I was woken up to an immense pressure on my chest. I remember I couldn't move at all. The whole stay inside the lodge always felt like someone was watching you and things seemed to dart out of the corner of your eyes. My parents also stayed in the main lodge a few months after. My dad felt tapping on his shoulder while he was sleeping and thought it was my mother, only to realize she was facing the opposite direction. Starved Rock State Park has embraced its history, even if it is morbid and cruel, and offer a yearly haunted hike through the canyons as well as a live actor storytelling night telling the haunted stories of the area. From a Native American legend that showcases absolute brutality and death, to the rape and murder of three women, to the proclaimed innocence of a convicted man, Starved Rock has an interesting history, with many of its mysteries still unsolved. Thank you for joining us on this, our fourth season of Unsolved Mysteries of the World. In Season 5, we will return with more unsolved crimes, UFOs, hauntings, and much, much more, including a special guest host. I like to call him Dr. D, but we'll get a full introduction to him in Season 5. At this time, we will be taking a short break. In the meantime, stay safe and warm, and please share this podcast with your friends and family. We appreciate your support and hope you have enjoyed listening to this episode. Thank you for listening to Unsolved Mysteries of the World. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or your other favorite podcast directory, and subscribe, rate, and review. We would really appreciate your support. If you haven't already, join us on Facebook to enhance this episode with photos, illustrations, and lively discussion. Look for our suggested links and do share this podcast with others. Perhaps you or someone you know will have a solution to this mystery. This podcast is created by Cold Rasta Studios and includes music and sound effects by John Savoy, Albert Ray, Gerardo Garcia Jr., Rana Szilard, Madia Cupelli, 
Alex Lisi, Martin Kahlberg, and Adrian Von Ziegler.